Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 21 in our series of 2022, and today's date is Friday, June 24th. First, I'll be talking to Domain's Chief Revenue Officer, John Fung, to discuss how new technology is shifting into the emerging property market. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist, Colin Pickering, to discuss the latest jobs figures. But now let's talk to John Fung. John. Tell us, how is technology changing the property market? So many ways, Leon. So many ways. Uh, I think the the biggest way technology has changed the market is it is making everyone having access to data and insights uh, at a much faster pace and a much deeper uh, way than ever before. So if you're a tickle buyer, you're going to go back 20, 30 years, you read what you got on the paper, and you listen to your real estate agent, and then it's pretty hard. You've got to kind of look out to see what's happening in your neighborhood. You're walking by foot, you're looking in the windows. Whereas now everything you want of those things is at your fingertips. You can kind of see what's going on. You can see, you can do comparables. You can pull it yourself. You can look up valuations from multiple sources. You can read so much of that great research uh, from domain and other providers. So that's changed a lot. Seekers are a lot more smarter. But I would also say that on the agent side, there's a lot more intelligence too. Uh, they can draw insights. They can use artificial intelligence. They can aggregate things and data and make more holistic and smarter recommendations than before. So both seeker and uh, an agent are a lot smarter than we were before. That would create many more choices, and it, would make it, and it would actually make it more challenging for the buyer, wouldn't it? It, it kind of makes it both more challenging and easier for everyone. It's easy to get access to information, but it's more challenging because other buyers are more intelligent, uh, things like that. There's more things to consider. It's the tyranny of choice. Uh, you're now competing with other buyers who might be from an out-of-state overseas, so loads of possibilities, more competition and more information. Indeed. But it would also, from an agent's perspective, it would also make the buyers certainly more challenging because they'd have so much more information. At That's their- right. I think for, as an agent, you are a lot of the value that you would historically have provided by being an expert who has access to industry knowledge has been eroded. So you have to be smarter with not publicly available information, which is now freely available, uh, but you'd be smarter with your insights. Uh, and the way you help people think and coach them through the process, whether a vendor selling or a buyer buying, the bar has been raised. Well, this is this is all very good for consumers, but what about investors? I mean, it would actually have a major role for investment market. Yeah, I think it's exciting for investors. Someone who's been investing for, I guess, almost three decades now in some capacity, 
you have so much ability to get access information uh, than you do before. Uh, but it also means you're competing with a much broader set of investors who can look at that information. Uh, and they, there's still no substitute, I think, for an investor going and walking the streets and looking at the house. Uh, but there is more information yet to figure out where you should be visiting first than there would be a decade or so ago. But it would also apply to overseas investors too. Yeah, it would apply to overseas investors. And I think COVID has, has kind of like tapered that off a little bit. But certainly with the, you know, the accessibility of information, overseas investment has grown a lot in the last few decades. Because of the technology? I think it's a few things. I think Australia is just an amazing place to be. And everyone gets that. Everyone wants to live here. Everyone knows us. So I think naturally you're going to see this flood of capital to the best cities in the world to invest in. And you see that in the Sydney's and the Melbourne's, you know, the world and the Perth's and the Brisbane. Uh, these are world-class cities where it's a safe investment. People are always going to be, it's growing, it's vibrant, it's multicultural. But yes, the internet has definitely helped bring that transparency of information and ability to find agents and other resources on the ground, like legal, conveyancing, pest control, that would otherwise take a local on-the-ground network to set up. Uh, how much of it is using AI? You know, I actually think there's not as much AI being used as they could be used. So if you think of most of what the information people are getting, it is effectively browsing databases using search. So there's not a lot of AI there yet. Where you really get to AI is interesting is making recommendations. For example, you know, Domain is a product called LeadScope, where we can recommend out of, if you're an agent and you have this big database of, 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 of houses, which house is likely to sell or want to sell in the next 24 months, right, next 12 months. So we can assign a percentage of that. That's AI at work. But a big database has listings. That's just a more efficient classifieds. No AI, very reliant on the cloud, but no AI just yet. But so the AI would be a particular use for agents as opposed to the buyers. Would that be right? I think right now uh, we're using AI on both sides. The example I gave was for agents uh, trying to help them, uh, you know, find the next listing. Uh, for buyers, there's definitely AI involved as we help curate their search experience using AI to recommend uh, which are the most suitable houses they want to look at. So there's a bit of AI on both sides. And how ready are buyers for AI? <laughs> well, I think it's like anything, right? Uh, folks are ready because over the last five or 10 years, the consumer internet has trained us to be ready for various incarnations of AI. You know, you think on Amazon, the suggestion for you, maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was like totally weird. But now it's very, very normal to go, oh, thank you for suggesting that product, right? And you think that YouTube or Netflix, that suggests what you should watch next. That's a very, very natural, non-creepy experience. Again, a generation ago, that would have been very, very strange. So I think we are more expecting, and not even just being open, but expecting uh, AI uh, in various incarnations to help us make, make, make better use of our time. Well, that's interesting. That's very interesting. So would you say that has accelerated with COVID? COVID accelerated the use of AI in different ways. If you think of the way that COVID changed the way that people browse, it took it away from the physical and onto the virtual. And so you look at the proportion of time you spend in front of a computer versus on foot, it shifted it very dramatically. And so AI that was helped for you people to browse quickly, particularly in this case, seekers looking for information or agents trying to look for next lead, that really, really accelerated AI, yes. So what about blockchain and mobile apps? Um, blockchain and mobile apps. So I can take them, I'll take them two separately. Uh, mobile apps are a little more easy to answer. People expect an awesome mobile app experience. They expect that they can use the 20 seconds they're spending at a bus stop or while they're walking one place to another to have a meaningful interaction where they find out information either by reading content, you know, or, uh, by, uh, or by, by browsing a house or looking at it. So it's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. It's going to be accurate. It's going to be easy to use. It's going to be shareable. It's going to be social.
right? So, and that's kind of table stakes. And we're very grateful that our app is really well loved. It's got 4.7 stars on the App Store. Blockchain's a little different. I have not seen the use of blockchain widespread in Australian real estate at all. And blockchain overall is an amazing technology uh, that is going to allow distributed decision-making and more stability in systems. And we're already seeing it, obviously, with Bitcoin being made the most famous example of blockchain. But I think as it comes to actually like how you might use it in real estate, which is how people might buy things together or do contracts with the blockchain rather than on paper, I think we're a very long way from the, uh, the, the democratization uh, of that. Although blockchain is uh, taking off overseas. Uh, I must say that I am not deeply aware of where it is, but you can inform me, Leon. Okay, okay, okay. But I believe I believe there are studies showing it's actually used in the property market overseas. It wouldn't surprise me if it is. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it is being used in, in, in the uh, in the property market because it allows decentralized parties to make contracts. I must say, in my research, it hasn't come across the mainstream for me just yet. But it wouldn't surprise me if people are trying. Well, it would also create some security. Of the transaction, doesn't? Yeah, yeah, that's the beautiful thing about blockchain. Like, it's unhackable. It's 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 it can't be overcome by social engineering. Uh, it, it is it's there. Uh, so, well, sorry, anything can be overcome with social engineering, but it allows contracts to be to be to be that, that even no court can overturn. So, there's a lot of attractions there. And when people are building an organization or investment unit uh, that aren't there before, what about stuff like the Internet of Things? Is that uh, changing things? You know, I haven't seen a lot of the Internet of Things changing real estate per se. Uh, where I come from, the cloud computing worlds, the Internet, of the Internet of Things is changing a lot of stuff, like property management, you know, for example. In just simple things like your soap dispenser is out and there's a notification that tells someone to refill the soap. Now, that's good, you know, particularly on the commercial property side. I actually have not seen a lot of innovation on the Internet of Things maybe the last few years in at least Australian residential property. I could imagine a lot of places where it would be, even just trivial things like I just gave, but I actually haven't heard much about it. Whereas the cloud, where I came from, it was, it was all over. We were talking about with telephony and things of that nature. Right, okay. So do you see potential for the Internet of Things to expand? You know, I do when it comes to commercial real estate, which is something that Domain invests in through commercialrealestate.com. Uh, I do think that what we are trying to help, you know, the big... Um, you know, property managers around the world, the CBREs, the Colliers, is how do they not just make transactions like leasing and buying and selling, but how do they, you know, develop a lot of, of, uh, of value through property management as a service, you know, subscription type models. And the Internet of Things, effectively, you think about it as like you could have eyes all over the place or ears all over the place. These are things where you can automate value that can be added, uh, typically added by people having to manually check it, and then they can charge a premium, you know, for that. And so some of those folks are already doing that. They're heavily on the Internet of Things. Uh, but I haven't seen that much application in real estate uh, for, for residential so far. But certainly for commercial, it would actually apply quite well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant for commercial uh, because we all expect uptime everywhere. We, we want to automate and outsource as much as possible. This is a very good use case for commercial real estate. Okay. So where do you see the market developing with uh, technology? Where do I see the property market developing with technology in general? In general, yeah. For, well, for, for domain. For domain. So I think a few areas. Um, you know, the core of our business is still listings. We want to help seekers find the right house for them as quickly as possible. We want to help people selling their house get access to the biggest, biggest possible buyers, right? So if you think about technology there, technology is the ultimate democratization tool. If you can make things cheap, fast, accessible, then everyone can see it and everyone can list their house on it. And that creates a great marketplace. 
So obviously that is what led to the creation domain uh, back in 1999, when we went from newspaper classifieds to a website and from a website to an app. And I expect over time, technology will just make that faster and broader and more affordable. I think the other part of our job though is, is agents. We wanna help agents be twice effective in half the time. And I think where technology was seeing some big jumps is democratization of what they were doing on paper. So for example, contracts used to be all 100% paper, reams and reams of paper for every sale for every rent. And now effectively what we've got with real-time agent is we've, we've taken that and digitized that, right? So instead of having reams of paper, you can now effectively have DocuSign for all the contracts that are really required as each state jurisdiction requires. That's a great way that technology is saving people's time, making it even more secure and saving a lot of paper in the process. Well, John, it's been fascinating talking to you and thank you so much for your time. Leon, it's a pleasure. Uh, thanks for the work you do. I'm uh, just very, very grateful for the work of yourself. Uh, in terms of making making uh, technology and property more more available for everyone, uh, we're very grateful for multipliers and amplifiers like you in the market. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, uh, the unemployment figures remain steady at three point nine percent. What's your take on that? It was it was a really strong set of labour uh, force figures for for May. The the unemployment rate was unchanged at three point nine percent, but when you dig into the detail, um, there was some really positive news. So the, the headline figure, uh, employment was up 60,000 people, which is an incredible number at this point in the cycle with the unemployment rate so low. We also saw a significant decline in underemployment. It fell to 5.7%, and that's the lowest we've seen since uh, 2008. And when you put the unemployment and the underemployment figures together, you get an underutilisation rate of 9.6%. Now, that might sound high, but in the context of this figure, we're actually talking about a 40-year low. So the labour market is incredibly tight right now. It continues to tighten, and it's doing so in an increasingly difficult economic environment with inflation high and interest rates rising. So the economy is proving to be really resilient right now. And I think that's a, a real positive as we go forward throughout this year. What about vacancies? So they, they seem to be remain at record levels. Yeah, that's right. The job vacancy rates are 2.8% right now. Now, just to put that into context, the vacancy rate was about 1.4% in the decade leading up to the pandemic. So there's roughly twice as many vacancies as was once considered normal. Uh, pure job terms, we're talking about 420 thousand vacancies nationwide so there are a lot of opportunities available and we're not seeing any slowdown in job creation so at Indeed, we can sort of track job advertisements in almost a real-time basis and we're seeing no drop in demand for workers right now now typically when vacancies are high when job creation is strong that leads to a tighter labor market so all these indicators are suggesting that the labor market will continue to tighten over the next few months, which is perhaps a little bit surprising given a lot of the commentary we are seeing around the economy right now, particularly with regards to high inflation and rising interest rates. That's interesting because that would the jobs figures would suggest that the well the jobs market at least seems to be coping quite well with inflation and all the other negative stuff about the economy. Well exactly. I mean this is data for May. So high inflation had been pretty normal for, you know, the best part of four to five months at this point. Interest rates started to rise in in, in, in May, so we had one month of higher interest rates. So the, the fact that the, the labour market does continue to tick over and actually has strengthened 
really does point to the resiliency of the Australian economy. Um, it's, it's something that we've, we've talked about in the past. It's something that's been proven throughout the pandemic. But the economy continues to prove itself to be quite resilient. And we are seeing it in other measures of the economy, such as uh, retail spending, um, which remains quite positive as, as well. So, you know, at least, at least at this point, we are absorbing the impact of higher inflation quite well. Well, it's obviously going to become more challenging over the remainder of the year. High inflation isn't going away and households will, household budgets will tighten, savings will diminish and we probably will see some economic impact at some point. Um, but the fact that we've gone this way so far uh, is certainly a positive. Well, I'm not suggesting this is going to happen to Australia, but uh, all the talk is that, you know, at least one of the major Western economies is going to go through a recession. You know, we're seeing talk about the US, talk about the UK, and that will have an impact on Australia, which will have an impact on jobs figures as well, looking further out. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's going to be difficult for all of these advanced economies to tighten rates, um, particularly given how quickly they're tightening rates, and keep their economies ticking over. Uh, It is likely that at least one central bank, probably a number of central banks, are are going to be maybe a little bit too aggressive uh, with interest rates and and push their economies into a recession. Whether that happens to Australia, I mean, nobody knows for sure, but it is certainly likely that the economy will slow down at some point over the next 12 months. And certainly if the RBA tightens as much as markets anticipate, which is that the cash rate's going to end up in a sort of mid 3% range uh, within the next 12 months, um, then that would certainly increase the likelihood of a downturn or potentially a recession. The Australian economy doesn't quite have the the buffers that we had uh, before the pandemic began um, that would protect us from a recession. And by that, I mean population growth is nowhere near as strong in Australia now as it was before the pandemic. A recession was really difficult to orchestrate in a high population growth country. With population growing very slowly right now, the the likelihood of a recession actually increases quite a bit. Um, So that is a a concern for Australia. But as I said before, right now we do seem to be absorbing the impact of high inflation and higher interest rates quite well. And so we can be reasonably optimistic about our prospects going forward. Well, looking out, looking out at that, that would suggest, wouldn't it, that if we are hit by an economic downturn of some sort, whether it's a recession or just a downturn, uh, that will affect jobs figures. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all but certain at some point we are going to see a, a slowdown in, in jobs growth. We could see a, a pickup in the unemployment rate. I guess the important point, though, is if you're going to enter a downturn, if the labour market is going to slow down, you'd prefer to be doing it from the point we're currently at, which is unemployment rate at a near 50-year low, underutilisation at a near 40-year low. You know, we're we're entering this very challenging time from a, a pretty strong position. And that puts households and businesses in a, in a better position to absorb that impact. Uh, I think this inflation... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. 
Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. ...shock would turn out very differently if, you know, the unemployment rate was at 5% or 6%, you know, if that was our starting point. Um, but the fact that the starting point is so strong um, does suggest that we are, you know, better placed to weather the storm. Indeed. And uh, so what does this mean for the RBA? They'll be uh, raising interest rates furiously, uh, according to these figures, wouldn't they? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's widely expected the RBA is going to hike aggressively over the remainder of the year. Uh, markets are pricing in a cash rate of, you know, around 3% by the end of the year, 3.5% by uh, mid next year. Um, so they're expecting the RBA to basically hike at every single meeting uh, for the remainder of the year, with, with some of those meetings seeing 50 basis point increases. Now, I don't know whether the RBA is going to be as aggressive as the market anticipates. Uh, historically, they do tend to be quite cautious. But at the very least, we are going to see a, a number of rate rises this year as the RBA tries to rein in inflation, which is already at 5%, and which the RBA believes is going to get to 7% by the end of the year. And, uh, and of course, with the Fed hiking rates uh, recently, uh, 75 points, uh, that would suggest there would be more pressure on the RBA to behave quite aggressively. Well, that's right. Um, one of the key channels through which tighter monetary policy impacts inflation is via the exchange rate. Now, in an ideal situation, the RBA would hike rates, the Australian dollar would appreciate against the US dollar and our other major trading partners, and that would put downward pressure on inflation. But it's not an ideal environment. We've got central banks across the world are fighting the same inflationary shock. Everyone's increasing rates, which means the capacity for the Australian dollar to appreciate uh, is greatly diminished. Um, but it also means that if the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank is more aggressive than the RBA and they're pushing rates uh, up higher and, and faster than we are, then that could actually put downward pressure on the Australian dollar. Um, you know, the Australian dollar uh, depreciates and that would put upward pressure on inflation. That would make the inflation battle uh, even more difficult. So the RBA needs to to balance the domestic factors versus what other central banks are doing across the world um, to ensure that what's happening with the Australian dollar is in line with fighting inflation. Now, the best they might be able to do is just to keep the Australian dollar steady. You know, they may not be able to orchestrate an appreciation of the dollar in the current environment. Uh, but even that is, is much better than a significant depreciation in the dollar. So that'll be something to, to closely watch what other central banks are doing versus what the RBA is doing as well. And the problem is, uh, Governor Lowe pointed out uh, recently, is that there are so many unknowns here and so much uncertainty. And we, we're dealing with uh, issues of COVID lockdowns in China. We're dealing with uh, a war in Ukraine. We don't know where it's going to pan out. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, normally when we talk about high inflation, it's been driven by demand factors. Um, you know, there's a strong demand for goods and services and prices go up and central banks know how to deal with that. This is a very different situation. We're dealing with a supply shock and we're dealing with heightened uncertainty um, due to the pandemic itself and the impact that's had on supply chains globally, as well as the Ukraine war. Now, nobody has any idea when the pandemic impact is, is going to end. 
Um, you know, we, we hope that the, the worst is behind us, but we don't know for sure. And nobody knows, except for maybe Vladimir Putin, um, when the uh, Russia-Ukraine war is going to end. And so setting, setting monetary policy in the current environment is very difficult because we are dealing with a high degree of uncertainty and conditions could potentially change quite rapidly. Right now, it looks as though aggressive monetary policy is the best option. Three months from now, six months from now, the situation could be quite different, um, which may warrant a, a rethink of, of policy. Um, so central banks are going to need to weigh up that uncertainty against what the data flow is, is telling them. Um, and so... Yeah, right now there is definitely um, risks associated with that uncertainty. Well, Callum, that's all stuff to think about. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Elon Musk, Nouriel Roubini and Goldman Sachs Group, Inc. have warned of a growing likelihood that the US economy will fall into recession. Their outlooks will stoke fears of a hard landing for the world's biggest economy as the Federal Reserve jacks up interest rates to counter the fastest pace of inflation in decades. Musk said that a recession in the US looks likely in the near future. Seeking to quell a surge in living costs, the Fed accelerated its monetary tightening campaign last week with its biggest interest rate hike since 1994. That drove fresh losses on Wall Street and has increased the odds of a recession, piling pressure on President Joe Biden. New York University professor and notorious doom and gloom economist Nouriel Roubini predicted a recession by the end of this year. Roubini said his prediction is for a hard landing, meaning the economy could soon see a major downturn soon. He said a combination of global issues like COVID-19, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's zero-tolerance COVID policy are to blame for reduced economic growth. If you're looking at consumer confidence, if you look at retail sales, if you look at measures of manufacturing activities, if you look at housing, they're all slowing down very sharply at a time when inflation is still very high. That's stagflation, it's not just a recession, he said. Goldman Sachs said the chance of a recession hitting in the next 12 months had risen from 15% before the rate hike to 30% as of this week, and they said the chance of a recession in the two years had risen to just shy of 50% from 35% previously. And cryptocurrencies and stablecoins are structurally flawed, prone to abuse by criminals, and unlikely to ever replace normal money. Groundbreaking research into the sector by the Bank for International Settlements has revealed. The bank, which acts as a central bank for the world's central banks, said the drive by mainly young, risk-taking men in, into cryptos was being driven more by innovation for innovation's sake rather than any fundamental beliefs they offered to global finance. The fall in value plus growing use of cryptos by organised criminals has prompted the concerns that technology is more akin to a Ponzi scheme than a possible alternative to government-backed currencies. The BIS study revealed the uses of crypto exchange apps skew heavily to, to young men who are prepared to take financial risks. Almost 40% of users are men under the age of 35, compared to 19% of women in the same age bracket. And housing affordability in Australia is likely to worsen as the impact of higher interest rates outweighs the benefit of falling prices, Moody says. The ratings agency said Australian households with two incomes needed 26.8% of monthly income to meet monthly repayments on new mortgages in May, up from 25.7% in January. This measure of housing affordability deteriorated in all capital cities over the period and was worse for houses than apartments. In Sydney, new borrowers needed 37% of household income to meet mortgage repayments in May, while in Melbourne they needed 29.8%, in Brisbane 23.1%, in Adelaide also 23.1% and in Perth 16.3%. Comparing houses and apartments, house buyers needed 30.2% of household income to meet mortgage repayments in May, compared with 21.4% for apartment buyers. 
And Coolabar Capital Investments has warned that Aussie house prices could fall by more than 30% if the Reserve Bank of Australia fulfills uber-aggressive market expectations for an increase in its cash rate from the post-pandemic nadir of 0.1% all the way to 4.25%. This would translate into an increase in the cheapest discounted variable mortgage rate from about 2.25% to 6.5% or possibly higher, given bank credit spreads or funding costs have widened sharply. Coolabar Capital Investments has analysed the impact of temporary changes in interest rates on the housing market, focusing on current market pricing of a broad peak in the cash rate of 4.25% over 2023, followed by rate cuts in 2024 and 25. This analysis suggests that the cycle in interest rates still has significant effect in the short term, pointing to a large correction of about 30% in national home prices over the next four years, or circa 40% from late 2022 onwards. And Industry Minister Ed Husik has put exporters such as Shell and Santos on notice to divert more supplies to the domestic market before the government forces them to do so under existing rules or drafts or drafts tougher laws with, with more severe controls on exports. Husik accused the country's major gas producers of failing to deliver enough fuel to manufacturing companies that are desperate for affordable energy, saying the big exporters will face drastic federal action if they do not ease the winter energy crisis. With energy bills soaring for industrial customers, Husik said the gas exporters need to know the government was deadly serious about direct intervention to force them to supply the domestic market on the grounds they were breaching their social licence to act in the national interest. And energy companies face a consumer watchdog probe into any price gouging and anti-competitive conduct during the rolling national power crisis, with a report into the electricity market to be handed to energy ministers next month after a five-fold increase in wholesale electricity prices. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission investigation will examine energy companies' profits and margins as part of a forensic audit into soaring energy bills linked to coal outages and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The crackdown will lead a series of regulatory reviews into the energy crisis as the industry navigates high prices, supply shortages and reforms, including capacity mechanism to secure longer-term baseload power. While the Energy Security Board suggested coal and gas be included in, the, in its draft mechanism, Victoria Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio on Monday ruled out any supply payments to fossil fuel generators. ACCC Chair Gina Cascotlieb, whom Jim Chalmers ordered to look into whether energy market rules have been breached, said the watchdog would provide greater transparency around the factors influencing electricity and gas prices, including profits and margins from a wide range of energy companies. And losses at Energy Australia due to the East Coast energy crisis have forced Hong Kong-based CLP to the red in the June half, citing challenging and extreme energy market conditions in Australia. In a statement released in Hong Kong on Monday evening, CLP pointed to a loss of 7.2 billion Hong Kong dollars, or 1.3 billion Aussie, on electricity forward contracts held by Energy Australia over the first five months of the year. Excluding that accounting impact, Energy Australia also suffered a 1.1 billion Hong Kong dollar cut in operating earnings for the January and May period compared to a year earlier. CLP blamed the reduction on forced outages at the Yulon Power Station in Victoria and coal supply constraints at its Mount Piper generator in New South Wales. And many superannuation savers will see their first losses in 13 years after the market downturn buffeted funds, but experts are urging members to avoid making panic decisions that can lock the losses in. Soaring inflation, slowing growth and shifting central bank strategies bludgeoned share markets this month and superannuation research house Chant West estimates the median growth fund, those with 61% to 80% exposure to growth assets such as shares, will end the financial year at minus 5%. A negative result will be only the fifth in 30 years since the introduction of compulsory super in 1992. 
Chant West's figures measure fund performance to May and do not include the turmoil of the past few weeks. Researchers noted the high volatility could trigger either a worsening of investment conditions or an improvement when the new financial year begins. Funds deliver a minus 0.6% return on average in the 2020 financial year when the last significant correction occurred. Many still managed to deliver positive returns, meaning some fund members are now seeing their first slump in 13 years. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has overridden Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe's wishes and will appoint a panel of independent experts to review the central bank, including a monetary policy expert from overseas. Dr Lowe, who the Treasurer has said he has a mountain of respect for, has pushed for a joint RBA Treasury review of the central bank, similar to a model employed by Canada to ensure the RBA's independence from politics and to protect its reputation. The RBA has come under scrutiny for its pre-pandemic policies and incorrect forward guidance during COVID-19 that interest rates were not expected to rise until at least 2024. Official interest rates rose in May and June this year, including a supersized 0.5 percentage point by rise this month. Dr Chalmers has also finalised a model for review into the RBA, including the terms of reference and the small panel of review members. He will soon consult Cabinet colleagues and speak to Dr Lowe before announcing detail for the review. Dr Chalmers has been collaborating with Dr Lowe about the review and has made it clear that it is not a witch hunt into the RBA. The review is likely to consider the composition of the RBA board members, the appointment processes, the 2% to 3% inflation target and the joint statement on the conduct of the monetary policy between the Treasurer and Governor. Some observers believe the board should have more professional economists to challenge the Governor and Deputy Governor on technical monetary policy issues. The current nine-member board includes five business people. The four economists are Dr Lowe, Deputy Governor Michelle Bullock, Ian Harper and Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy. Dr Chalmers has vowed to include monetary policy's interaction with the government's fiscal policy in the review. It is unclear if the Reserve Bank Act will be prized open under the review. Some officials are concerned that any move to amend the legislation would risk the the Greens in the Senate trying to add climate change and inequality to the bank's mandate. The review will be asked to report by June next year, after the government's second federal budget in May and before Dr Lowe's seven-year term expires in September 2023. And the Reserve Bank has given anxious borrowers hope it won't accelerate monetary policy tightening again next month, even though it indicated rates would continue to rise and the RBA would do what is necessary to ensure the inflation returns to the 2-3% target range over time. Answering questions after his speech to the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia, RBA Governor Philip Lowe pushed back against market pricing of aggressive rate hikes, saying that while the market has been more accurate in recent times, the trajectory of hikes implied by the pricing is not particularly likely. An initial group of 65 refugees with technology experience will be placed in paid cadetships in the technology teams of Woolworths and Accenture as part of a new program to help tackle Australian IT skill shortages. As talent shortages visa delays bite, firms are tapping into alternative pathways to bolster the number of staff who have specific skill sets whose qualifications or experience are not recognised by mainstream recruiting processes. Woolworths will take 30 refugee cadets over the next 18 months, while others will join Accenture, which has 952 open job ads on LinkedIn later in the year in its South Australian office. Woolworths General Manager of Inclusion, Catherine Hunter, who joined from KPMG nine months ago, said the specialised recruitment drive expands on a program that has placed more than 200 refugees in jobs across its stores and distribution centres since 2018. Two of the first group of Iraqi and Syrian refugees to undertake the 12-week training program have been working in Woolworths stores. And shoppers will face average rises of 1.9% every year until 2025, Deloitte says. The consultancy's quarterly sector report 
shows price growth is forecast to peak at 5.5% over the year to December, with food retail prices up 7.6% over the same period. It says retail sales have come out of the pandemic in a strong position, but spending is forecast to slow in the second half of the year, and retailers face a shift to value purchases, shrinking margins and rising costs. The Deloitte Access Economics figures show double-digit sales growth is expected for apparel, catered food and department stores over 2020, compared with lockdown 2021, delivering a retail sales increase of 5.5% over the year. And 11 universities are being investigated for potentially underpaying staff, and the Federal Workplace Watchdog has flagged high-level action against several as it puts the tertiary education sector on this year's priority list. Fair Work Ombudsman Sandra Parker said underpayments in the tertiary sector have become a systemic issue, which has been linked to the use of casual academics. Parker said she was pretty shocked to discover the casualisation rates at universities during a Senate inquiry into job security earlier this year. The inquiry heard that 47% of the University of Melbourne's 11,000 staff last year were casuals. The second interim report of that inquiry said casuals and staff on fixed-term contracts made up two-thirds of the sector. Parker said while there was nothing wrong with casual work, its use by universities year after year raised questions. And Woodside and Fortescue are both throwing their hats in the ring to develop a green hydrogen plant in New Zealand that will use renewable energy freed up by the possible closure of a Rio Tinto aluminium smelter. Southern Green Hydrogen, a joint venture of two New Zealand power providers, has announced that WA's two largest companies would enter final negotiations to develop what what could be the world's largest green hydrogen plant with a reported cost of $4.5 billion. Both Woodside and Fortescue are keen to diversify it into hydrogen as a clean fuel to decarbonise industries that are difficult to electrify, including shipping and steelmaking, but have clashed over the best approach. Fortescue Chair Andrew Forrest wants a miner to make 15 million tonnes of green hydrogen a year by 2030 by separating it from water using renewable power. Meanwhile, Woodside is pursuing green hydrogen as well as blue hydrogen, made by extracting it from gas and either burying or offset some or all of the substantial greenhouse gas emissions. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Justin Webb, co-founder and chairman of AgriWeb, a data-driven software platform committed to delivering the digital future of agriculture, transforming global cattle, sheep and dairy production, helping farmers with profitability, provenance and sustainability across the supply chain. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel about the outlook for house prices across Australia. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.